Statue of Liberty there? I don't know. I know one thing. It was a gift from the French. And you used to be able to walk up inside it. I don't know if you can still do that. I think you can. Where'd you hear that? Uh, I think I've seen pictures of people there. How old is the Statue of Liberty? I don't know. Let's go find out. That's how you end every recording. That's our motto. Our tagline. Why do we need a motto? You know, that's a good question. I don't know if we need a motto. Hey, it's Jim, and you're listening to Rome School. Why do people want to come to the United States? Rome Schooled is what happens when you take that sense of wonder that children have and you make it into a show for grown-ups. We go out together, me and my two six-year-old daughters, usually in an old Winnebago, but this time we flew to New York. This is our second episode about the Statue of Liberty and immigration. In this episode, we start in New York City, but then we come home and we're going to take a deep, involved look at a very peculiar event that brought many, many people here, all in the flash of an eye in 1975. We tackle some issues in this show that I didn't think I wanted my daughters at age six to be thinking about. But they asked the questions, and when we started learning about it, we wanted to go further. One question leads to another, and when we leave our screens and computers behind and start talking to people in person, it's, it's pretty amazing the things that we find out. This has been the hardest episode of Rome Schooled by far. Not because it's a personal story for me, but because it's a personal story that affects all of us. This episode's different from previous episodes in several ways, but for one thing, it doesn't wrap up at the end. At the end of this hour, we're embarking on a journey, and we're not sure where it's going to take us or how long it's going to take to resolve. But you are more than welcome to come along for the ride and help us out. But first, we're about to touch down in New York. If you've had the pleasure of traveling with children, you know that one of the few times that they stop asking questions is when they're asleep. I pretty much had to carry these guys from the gate at JFK to the station at the Long Island Railroad. So that's what a red eye feels like. Mm. How does a red eye feel? Tired. Because I did not sleep, so I got red eye. You did too sleep. I didn't. I barely slept. No, you slept because you guys... You said I had red eyes. You do, but you guys slept so hard that I actually crawled down onto the floor and slept underneath you. We made it happen. We're in New York. You guys, you know where I want to go? What? To my favorite deli, Zabar's. Why? Because they have the best incredible food, bakery, meat market, cheese market, stuff from around the world. Have you ever had a knish? What is a knish? Um, well, let's go have one and you'll see. We're kind of winging it on our first day in New York. After Zabar's, we step outside and there's a late season snowstorm moving in. So after we walk for a while in Central Park, we decide to dart in and out of shops to stay warm. And here we meet real New Yorkers, immigrants, and we start listening to their stories. Ask whatever you like, I'm, I'm okay. What does the Statue of Liberty mean to you, coming from Pakistan? Actually, the, if you ask me that, our life is a very busy life. We work, work, and work. Seven days almost work for the store. It's very hard that one, it's not easy. This store is closed only four days in the year. In a year? In the year, only Christmas, New Year, Thanksgiving. Otherwise, store is open. So is it the American dream? When I come over here in this country, I'm alone when I come. It's like 1992, very hard, because uh, I'm alone and not speak English that time. I know only few words. Thank you, brother. Thank Thanks. you very much. Thank you. Yeah, the person we're talking to, his name is Aslam. He's from Pakistan. I applied for my my sister 14 years ago, and no, they love, they want to affidavit for that one. And every day it is too much for that one. And all the time is done after 14 years. And they took the fees and everything is very difficult. It's very expensive. You pay a lot. You pay tax a lot. You pay everything a lot. Very hard life. It's not easy life. You run the business, it's very difficult. We don't have a family like six, seven years. 
but I, I feel lucky. While Aslam's helping another customer, we noticed that his register's covered with inspirational phrases. They're compiled from Gandhi to Winston Churchill to the Buddha. He asked if we would share these with you, our listeners. So there's a collection of these that he hands out to his customers, and we put it on our website. Aslam runs three small businesses, and after 19 years, he still hopes to bring the rest of his family over, though he's clearly surprised by the workload that living the American dream requires. 20 blocks later, the snow's really coming down, and as we duck into a magazine store, we're wondering if America feels like a welcoming place for immigrants. This next person we met was Ahmed. Uh, they used to welcome people, but nowadays the whole world is going on like that. Nobody uh, welcome anybody to their country. Before, they used to come and apply for immigration. Nowadays, it's only if you family member, or father, mother, parents apply for you, then you can be legalized over here. Ahmed is right, of course. The number one way that people can get into this country is through family family connections, and it's still not easy. And if you're looking to come here to be with your family, you better be ready to be busy, because this American dream is a busy one. Quinn is from Vietnam. Here you're so busy all the time. You're working, you're taking your child, kid, and everything. But there, even though you're poor, you only have that quality time with your family. Yeah. And you have that bond, that connection, very strong bond and connection with your family. Even your neighbor. They watch your kid for you. Yeah. You know, if you have something, you go, hey, hey can you watch it, mama? And yeah. you know, somebody's always carrying your kid around and, and playing with them. That's what I miss the most. Stop, stop, save New York. We just had a hot dog on the streets of New York, and that was actually not very good. It was great. You didn't even have any. Are you sure it was great? Yes. It looked a little bit... Um, anemic and she sliced it in half and put it on the grill and put it on two pieces of bread. That was the worst hot dog I've ever seen. I didn't even want to take a bite of it. It tasted good. But those nuts, they were so good. The nuts were so good. Nuts are good. Yeah, the nuts are good. Nuts for nuts. Can I start? Sure. This next person, we can't tell you her name. Why? Because she's not a citizen yet and she's from Canada. Why did you come to the United States? I came here for work. There are more jobs in the field that I work in here. What are field jobs? <laughs> I work in civil engineering and water resources, so it's a pretty specialized area. A better job. Ah. How many years ago did you move here? Almost 17 years. All along until now, I've had what they call a non-immigrant visa. And now I'm here on a TN visa, which is a NAFTA visa. TN? Mm -hmm. It stands for Temporary NAFTA. and It's supposed to bring professionals into the country who are going to contribute to the economy. Why, why do you want to become a citizen and not just continue to do what you've been doing? Uh, the visa I have right now is a work visa. So if ever I stopped working for any reason, I could no longer legally be in this country. Um, so say I got ill and couldn't work for a year, I would have to move. So it would be nice to know that I, I could continue living in my home. And well, I've lived in this country and paid taxes now for 16 years, and there's a number of things I can't do that a citizen can do. I can't vote. Um, if I take a class at City College, I'm considered a non-resident, even though I have lived here. What's the most frustrating thing about trying to become an American citizen? It, it's time and cost that you could put in and, and end up with no, no green card, no immigration visa. There's a good amount of uncertainty for immigrants when they're trying to become citizens. If you'll recall, Aslam worked for 14 years to bring over his family, only to have to start from scratch because of a technicality. Now keep in mind, this is a guy who's able to run three businesses in New York City and make it work. But when he tried to bring over his sister, the process got the better of him. Why do you think the Statue of Liberty is there? Uh, I think it's a beautiful statue. That's it? It's there for art. <laughs> it's there for art. You think it's mostly an artistic thing? I think it's a beautiful sculpture. Um, and now it's taken as a symbol of, of welcoming people to this country. It seems like there's so much uncertainty about what path to take, even if you're a bright professional who has proven herself to be not a burden on society, a taxpayer. To get a visa, you have to qualify. 
they have different levels, one, two, and three. And if you qualify for level one, people who got a Nobel Prize or highly acclaimed in their field, also professors, can move very quickly through the green card immigration process. I'm coming in at level two, which is intended for professionals. And then there's a level three for workers who are not professionals, and they can also get work. At level two, which I'm doing, you have to prove that you are more qualified for that job than any other American. Wow. Your employer has to post a job application. On a bulletin board somewhere or national? National. Uh, they have to post job listings and of all the applicants show that you are the most qualified. That's called the labor certification, the PERM process. And then after that, you can then apply for the green card and the immigration visa. Are you worried that somebody else will apply and be more qualified than you? No, I'm the most qualified for my job. What if you were the second most qualified in, in the United States? Then you couldn't get the job because you'd be taking the job from a U.S. citizen. For the application process, you're not allowed to count any of the time you worked for the company in your qualifications when you apply for the job. So I have to prove that before I worked for this company, which was in 1999 when I started working for them, I had more qualifications then than any other candidate now. Because if I learned on the job, then a new candidate could also learn on the job going forward. We don't really want people to come to this country just haphazardly. We want to pick and choose people coming to this country. So shouldn't the Statue of Liberty be more of a like a person with a magnifying glass looking down or something? <laughs> this is Alyssa. She's from Cameroon. That's in Africa. I came here when I was 13 years old. I lived with my uncle, who is in the military. I'm really thankful that I'm here. I'm not too sure exactly why I'm here, other than to be more exposed to different cultures as much as possible. I'm used to diversity, but it's nice to be in a place where everyone is just accepted as much as possible. Do you sense that they are accepted here? I feel like even though it's just such a cliche, oh, the Statue of Liberty, but it's holding a torch, you know? It's not like some guy just like, yeah, I was a president, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's a gift. Everything behind the Statue of Liberty is very, very beautiful. And so I feel like that's one of the things that makes America the promised land, like the land of milk and honey, because it really is. This is the one place where it doesn't matter the color of my skin. It doesn't matter what, like, sex I am or what religion I've been a part of or what I'm going to be a part of. I'm in America and when I go to Cameroon, those aren't the laws that they have over there. They have different laws over there that pertain to Cameroonian like stuff, you know, and so over here everyone is a free man, so and then that's where like the question of freedom, like what is freedom but, you know, that's freedom is all more, mostly mental. I feel like sometimes the people that are the guards in the prison, they end up staying longer than the prisoners. So, you know, it's like, well, who is really free, you know? <laughs> so what, what freedoms are compromised in Cameroon? What, what types of freedoms? Are there discriminatory rules or? Yeah, so certain freedoms such as homosexuality. That's just the very first one I can think about. Guys are allowed to hold hands. You'd be surprised, like you can be like, this is my best friend. I've known him all my life because we've gone to school, all of us together. But just nothing else can happen beyond that. Like no talk of dating or... And the punishment is pretty severe? It's pretty rash, like burning in the streets, you know, things like that. And those are one of the freedoms, you know, just the freedom to actually explore your inner self. And so it's a huge blessing. That's why America is, you know, the promised land, the, you know, the... You know, a really, really nice place to be. Come here to examine your country from a distance and then to see what your country really needs. You guys think we can walk all the way across the Brooklyn Bridge? Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's do it. We made it one way across the Brooklyn Bridge on foot, and then Dana learned how to hail a cab, got us back, and in that cab we met Ahmad. I was born in Algeria. You know Algeria? North Africa, like Morocco, Tunisia. Beautiful country. Nice. <laughs> Did you come here with your family? Of course. You brought you brought your whole family over. Yeah, I bring my kids for uh, for the college for learning. Everyone has a reason why he is here. Everyone, you know, it's free country and uh, opportunity for uh, work for, for uh, my kids for. Uh, maybe when uh, maybe when my kids finish school start work. I go home. I relax. <laughs> Here good. just for work. Work, 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 work. 
This is my second country. I am lucky. I have two countries. You know. Two countries. It clearly is a matter of pride, but it's also a matter of great responsibility. These men and women support families here and extended families back home. The theme here is hard work. Two jobs, three jobs, more sometimes. Rachel Game is an immigration lawyer we met in the last episode. I think people, when they're coming up, they are surprised, though, how difficult it is up here. That's one thing I hear. On one hand, they appreciate that they can earn money. But on the other hand, um, we work really hard in the United States. And um, that can come as a shock on just how expensive everything is and how you get on this um, treadmill. And it's really tough to get off. So is there such a thing as an American dream? You know, um, I see farm workers that they're living it because their dream is to buy a little house and their dream is that their kids go to school and finish high school and um, even go to college. I have some clients whose kids are in, you know, going to Oregon State University and with such pride that these parents say, I worked and supported my kids and they're going to be the first ones not only to graduate from high school but that they're going to college and so that's huge. Heaven or not it's here. The money fill up the street. The people who came here they were told that the streets of the United States are paved with gold. They're not paved with gold but it sort of was paved with gold in a way because they could try. They, had, they would have a chance. That was Andrew Fair, another immigration advocate. We left his office after a long day of talking to people. And at the end of the day, we find ourselves in Little Italy, where the streets are paved with cannoli. And it's time for a break. We got to go in here. This place is, I guess, the best cannoli in New York. What's cannoli? I, you know what? I don't even know exactly. It's, let's go find out. You're listening to Rome School, the show where we leave our screens and devices behind and we travel in search of answers to questions asked by my two six-year-old daughters. We're in New York, and the big item on the cannoli table is tomorrow's visit to the Statue of Liberty. We've thought so much and read so much about the Statue of Liberty, and in our last episode, we covered a lot of ground discovering what the statue means to people, the huddled masses, the proud and the free. There's so much history, rumors, and theories about the Statue of Liberty. There's one in which the original statue was meant for Egypt. This one's actually true. You see, the sculptor, Frederic Bartholdi, had sold Egypt on the idea as a celebration of the completion of the Suez Canal. He actually sculpted a smaller version of the statue, and for this statue, the women he used as models were from Africa, which means that, to some, the Statue of Liberty is a black woman. The full-sized Egyptian version of his statue never materialized. And after convincing a group of French intellectuals that the United States deserved the statue, Bartholdi found an island just off of Manhattan Island, and he convinced the U.S. military to close down an active fort there, and he convinced U.S. politicians to raise funds to repurpose the walls of that fort into being the base of this new colossal statue. And the rest is history. We got on the subway to go back to our hotel, and we got excited for the next day. We would get on a boat and visit the actual statue. The next morning, we woke up, we got out there, and we met our ranger, Lee, a retired school teacher. He told us everything interesting about the statue's conception, its mechanical structure, its factual history, and you know, it was riveting, pun intended. But the most memorable thing to all of us had to do with its purpose, which was surprisingly not to welcome people to the United States, but rather to celebrate. Your right foot was bent, indicating she's moving, she's walking. It's part of her symbolism, which is, she's taking you out of the darkness of slavery and oppression, and with that torch held high, leading the way into liberty and freedom. And under that left foot are the shackles and chains of slavery and oppression that are being crushed and held down so they don't rise again. And what he wanted the people to see is not only a statue, but something that is representing the end of slavery or oppression and freedom and liberty. 
The rest of our tour of the statue was great, but it didn't have much to do with our topic, which roughly is how people came to this country and why. So I want to take you with us down the most fascinating and difficult roaming adventure we've yet had. And this one is a real challenge. For immigrants or people on work visas, so much of the motivation is family. Getting a better life for their family or making enough money to send some home for the family or the struggle of bringing their families here to be together. But imagine if that whole idea of family was largely gone. There was a unique moment in history that lasted just a few weeks one spring in 1975. Thousands of people came here. And the strange thing is that during their journey, for all intents and purposes, they had no family. They didn't even have any idea they were becoming Americans. They just woke up here when the wheels of a cargo plane hit the ground. And with that, they became immigrants of a unique sort. And at that same moment, they became the objects of love and of great controversy. This was Operation Babylift, April 1975. So the war in Vietnam was ending, and things didn't go well, and the North Vietnamese were coming in. Well, I was putting in my two years, um, having been drafted into the military service. I was stationed at Travis Air Force Base in April of 1975. The North Vietnamese uh, were ready to break into Saigon. There was a great deal of fear at the time regarding what would happen to the children that were in orphanages there. So there were thousands of um, infants uh, and young children that were brought to the United States. For the longest time, I thought babies came from airports. Tell me about that. (laughs) Because that's where I came from. I mean, that was the story. If you think about it, my parents went to an airport and picked me up. They came on cargo planes, strapped to the floor, hundreds of them at a time, in cardboard boxes, no paperwork, sometimes a magic marker on bare skin, as they left the heat and the chaos of South Vietnam. Some of these uh, children came with uh, letters from their mothers, uh, written in broken English, saying that I'm sending this child uh, for a better life um, outside of Vietnam. was a very emotional thing to see that there was actually a mother attached to many of these kids, uh, just recognizing the greater potential for being somewhere else uh, besides Saigon for these babies. These babies were refugees, and they were centers of controversy. They were adoptees, war orphans, Southeast Asian-born, now American infant children. This was the biggest international removal and adoption of children ever. The man you just heard talking is my dad. His part in this was inspecting the health of a thousand or so of the incoming orphans. I remember our family being stationed at Travis Air Force Base, and I remember the C-5s coming in at the airstrip where we used to ride our bikes. My dad took some pictures during those weeks, and you can see these pictures at the Rome School website now. Years later, I went to school with these kids as my family moved around the country a lot from state to state. One of these kids was valedictorian at my high school. Another lived in my dorm in college. But it wasn't until 41 years later, this year, that I ended up talking with one of them in depth with my daughters. Her name's Liz, and she was born into complete chaos. It was very unorganized. Apparently they were told to go to a hotel near the airport, and so they went, and they, you know, a woman said, please come sit down, and so they sat there, and then all of a sudden, they brought a baby. This adorable me. baby. <laughs> Which <you>. was me. <laughs> Some of them were probably just a couple months of age. Probably the majority of them were uh, less than one year of age. So they kind of sat there for about 15 minutes, half an hour, and the lady came back and she said, well, is she okay? Are you guys happy with this? And they're like, oh my gosh, of course. So they just (laughs) took off thinking, gosh, this is way too easy. How old were you? Uh, Six months old. So I was born October 1st, they, they think. What do you tell people when they ask you where you were born? How do you begin to tell this story to somebody who doesn't have any idea? Wow, that's a good one. I obviously first start by saying I'm adopted. And they're like, oh, wow, blah, 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 do you know your parents? And that's a huge question that 99.9% of the time people ask. 
and there wasn't any kind of like birth certificates or papers or you know health reports i was just kind of left on the doorstep of a maternity hospital in in saigon so i think that i think probably what had happened was that i arrived on october 1st so they called out my birthday even though i had been a few weeks old maybe bonus weeks i know right <laughs> So you don't know anything about what happened to your parents? No. Yeah. Most of the time, a lot of uh, mothers, you know, died at childbirth. That's the story Liz was told. We'll come back to this. It's going to take a while, but we'll come back to it. So 3,000 babies, nobody knows exactly how many, got out of Saigon in these last days before Vietnam became unified, before the communists won Saigon. They all had new parents waiting for them. The whole effort was spearheaded by the U.S. On the topic of bringing in new people to this country, I asked my dad, who was in the Air Force at the time, why he thought that we took all these people in. I think um, it, there were multiple uh, motivations. I think that um, the major motivation was that we had an obligation to preserve the lives of these people uh, because they had been fighting with us uh, in this uh, really long and um, um, unpopular war. Um, it was thought that these people had been working with us and that we had an obligation. Many of these uh, children were either uh, true orphans where their uh, parents had been separated because of the war or the uh, children fathered by the uh, American soldiers. And there was concern that these kids would be sacrificed um, as being um, inappropriate to continue in a unified Vietnam. When we traveled back when I was 25 years old, we talked to a lot of Vietnamese officials, a lot of nuns, lots of people like that. And it was interesting because a lot of the um, northern Vietnamese, and they were very vocal about it, didn't think it was right that America took their babies. So that was quite interesting because I would have never thought about that. It never dawned on me that there's a whole other side to the story. It was an eye-opener. Do you see their point at all? Were there yeah. some valid... Yes, yes and no. I think just the war itself. It all had to do with the fact of having Americans in their country in the first place. I think that a lot of them believed that the Americans were stealing, actual stealing their babies, um, which to me I would have never thought of. But then again, I wasn't in that position. It was amazing that there were still people that felt so strongly about that still. Okay, one of the Rome School rules, if we have rules, are that we only talk to people in person. That's why we drive so many miles in this RV to talk in person with real people. Another sort of Rome School rule is that we don't get too involved in politics. But given that this happened 40 years ago, we're going to violate some Rome schooled rules. You see, the events around the Saigon baby lift are so incredibly complicated, and the aftermath is even more complicated, that it's not really about politics at all. It's not about adoption. It's not about war. It's about many of the things that often come up on this show. It's about who a person is, and where do they come from, and what's their story. So it's also about race, and it's about forgiveness and family, it's a sort of extreme case of looking at the things that happen to us and how they shape who we are. So for this episode, the question is who comes here and how? Who becomes an American and why? So remember how Liz was taken out of Vietnam? She was an orphan. Yeah. Do you remember the reason that she was taken out of Vietnam? Because there was a war. They worried that the North Vietnamese were going to do something terrible to these kids. Or at least that's what they told everybody. But I've been doing a bunch of research. I violated the Rome School rules and I did some internet research. What do you think of that? Mm. What does violated mean? Not following. I didn't follow the Rome School rules. Because he researched something. He looked it up. Oh. Well, here's what I found out. In a lot of people's opinion, the baby lift was propaganda. And it wasn't even for the purpose of getting those kids out of there because the United States wanted so badly to put a flowery bow on the war so they came up with this idea to save the babies 
so the United States lost that war, and the North Vietnamese came in. And do you know what? What? They never did go in and kill the orphans. Are the orphanages still there? Yeah, actually they are. And a lot of the people who worked in them are still there. So why would we steal babies? Um, to say that, oh, we saved babies, we're heroes. Yeah, so, but the people actually doing the work, in their minds, these babies were in danger, and in truth, they did give them a, what many would consider a better life. So which people are you, are you mocking when you say, oh, we want to be heroes? Um, like, um, the Kissinger. Wow, you remember him? <laughs> You've really been listening. <laughs> Is it because he has such a cool name? Yeah. <laughs> wow, so the politicians. Yeah. Politicians will do that sometimes. I'm not, I'm not trying to indoctrinate you <laughs> or anything, but you seem to you seem to be pick up on this stuff all on your own. I pay good attention. <laughs> yes, you do. Kissinger was the Secretary of State. Sweet name, right? He hoped against all logic and against all the CIA intelligence that was coming in through the embassy that the Viet Cong surge towards Saigon could be stopped if only someone would pour more money and aid into the war. So he thought he could get the North Vietnamese to stop shy of Saigon and to get them to sign something called a peace accord. What's a peace accord? It's an agreement to say we're not going to fight this war anymore. We've gotten everything that we wanted. You've got everything you wanted. Peace. Peace. And Congress said, nope, no more money. And then he went to the Saudi Arabians, and they said no. He went to the Iranians. Iran said no. Now, Frank Snepp was the lead CIA agent in Saigon. He quit the CIA later, and he published a book after the war called Decent Interval. And this book was banned until recently, and Frank Snepp is still, to this day, censored by the CIA. Every word he writes has to go through them for their approval. Every single word? Yep, whenever he writes anything. Even he... A? <laughs> I think so, yeah, I think so. The? Yep, probably. Because? Yep, yep, that one too. But when he talks to people, the CIA can't hear everything he says, so he was allowed to talk to us, and we were allowed to record it, and we had a conversation with him. And we violated a homeschooled rule, and we talked to him on the phone. Rule breaker, you've already looked something up. I know, I know, I know. But I broke the rules because I really wanted to talk to Frank about this because he's a really important part of the story. Why? Because he tells us some uncomfortable truths about the real reasons behind the baby lift. Snep worked just under the ambassador as the chief analyst of North Vietnamese strategy for the CIA. He was one of the architects of the baby lift and he played a huge role in getting people out during the fall of Saigon. We had been waiting for weeks to talk to him about Operation Baby Lift and we were ready to drive just about anywhere. For me personally, I needed to hear from Frank Snepp because he challenges everything I understood about the Vietnam War. Including this event that I witnessed as a little kid like so many people involved in the baby lift, it was a matter of me watching a heroic figure, my dad, play a role in a heroic effort that was based on motives from the top anyway that were deceptive and political. The U.S. government was not acting in the most benevolent manner. It was all calculated. The ambassador saw the baby lift as a way of garnering sympathy in the U.S. Congress and in the global community for the plight of the South Vietnamese. He wanted to elicit support for additional aid for the South Vietnamese regime, which was way beyond saving and any additional aid at that point. There was literally nothing at that point that would save the Saigon regime, which was riddled with North Vietnamese spies and corruption. So even if we had been able through sympathy plays like the baby lift to garner additional aid for the South Vietnamese, it wouldn't have made any difference. 
Frank Snepp worked at the embassy in Saigon, directly under Graham Martin, the ambassador. Graham Martin was uh, a determined man, the last ambassador to Vietnam. He'd lost a son there in combat, and he was not going to give up uh, South Vietnam to the communists. And he was willing to try anything, cynical or not, to try to uh, focus world attention and congressional attention on what was happening there. And the baby lift was central to his, his scheme. It sort of was sprung on him. Uh, there was great pressure in the press corps in Saigon, the American press corps, to evacuate employees. And uh, Martin thought that if some gesture were made to evacuate somebody, that it might damp down pressure to, to evacuate anyone. Martin was very concerned that an evacuation, unless it was cloaked in uh, humanitarian terms as something other than evacuation, would cause the final collapse of the South Vietnam government. Um, the baby lift, Martin felt, was uh, an exception to Martin's rule only because he thought it was a sympathy card and might cause people back home uh, to become interested in the South Vietnamese. And that's what Martin was about. So that's what upset the stage. People really did want to be heroes, and most of them wanted to do the right thing. It's just that sometimes the right thing was based on misinformation. Amazingly, the idea to fly the orphans out hadn't hatched from the United States military operations there. It came from watching private philanthropists come in and fly South Vietnamese citizens out on completely unauthorized commercial flights. The problem was that these flights were accompanied by chaos. The runways were scenes of mayhem with violence between friendly operatives about who would get on the planes. People were crushed. People were caught in the landing gear. Footage of these cowboy airlift rescue operations made their way back to the U.S. and around the world. And this footage showed the madness and despair of our failing effort in Vietnam. That was what was developing, a, a hugely chaotic situation. People were fighting their way aboard aircraft. And uh, so there were a lot of people operating around the ambassador without his approval, moving people out of the country. And he was pushing back. The one place he did not push back was with respect to the proposal for moving orphans out of the country. When Martin heard of it, he said, this is something I want to support. And all of a sudden, it became a cause celeb. And that's what led to the first major airlift involving the C-5A Galaxy on April 4th of 1975. This first airlift that the government sponsored didn't go well at all. It went horribly. The first cargo plane that flew out crashed. It's thought that 180 people died, but there was no official list of passengers, no documents or names. One of the people who survived the crash was this man, Philip R. Wise. He wrote a book about it called Fragile Delivery. Happy to help you. You ready? Is it the most frightened you've ever been? Most frightened? Actually, when it happened, I didn't have time to get frightened because it happened so fast. What happened was at 25,000 feet in the air over the South China Sea, the rear doors and cargo ramp blew off in flight. So our cabin depressurized and all the oxygen went out the doorway instantly. So therefore, uh, we had difficulty breathing, which I wasn't able to remain conscious for very long. Just long enough to see stuff flying out the back. Exactly. I, re I, I was conscious long enough to see debris uh, being sucked out in bodies and hearing the yelling and the screaming. It was just a total panic. Was Dana? Was the baby lift your proudest moment as a veteran? Yes. Looking back on it, I can't say that. But... During the time of the event, it was just well, me doing my normal duty. That's, that was my part of my job. What was your job? 
my title was called uh, Aero Medical Evacuation Technician. That's just a fancy word for in-flight medic. And what we did was we flew uh, patients all over Southeast Asia, including Vietnam. Wow. When, so when you went back to Vietnam and later reunited with some of your colleagues and also some of the families of the orphans, were you surprised by anything when you got back there? I was about the city of Saigon, now it's called Ho Chi Minh City, how well developed it, it, it is compared to back in the 70s. That's a very 21st century now. I'm very impressed. I was last there uh, last year for the 40th anniversary of my airplane crash, and we had a memorial service at the crash site. And there at the memorial service, I read the names of my 11 crew members that I lost. And of course, there were also five kids that was on my plane that survived the upper level. They returned there and we all had uh, read the names of all the kids and the female volunteer workers that worked with the defense attache office the doa because we lost over 40 women they were all down below with me you were the only person who survived on the deck the, on that lower deck right and initially i was told i was the only survivor in the cargo compartment about 25 years later i learned there was a little boy that also survived and he suffers severe brain damage i think i thank god every day i wake up for this uh extra life i call it my second birthday every april 4th i celebrate it wow that's yeah that's a, so i'm a 41 again <laughs> that's good too <laughs> when the plane crash happened uh, i just turned 23 so i was a brand new 23 I woke up two days later in a different country, in the ICU at Clark Air Force Base Hospital in the Philippines. Naturally, once I came out of my coma, I realized I had survived a plane crash, especially when I saw my one of my crew members lying next to me in the bed. And I looked at him, and I, I said, Greg, you didn't get messed up as bad as I did. And, uh, <laughs> He started laughing. Oh, Phil, you're alive. You're okay. You're going to be okay. And that's when all the nurses and doctors came to me because they was waiting on me to wake up so they could send me back to surgery. So I ended up spending six months in the hospital there in the Philippines. It seems like what was being what was feared was that the North Vietnamese were going to destroy the city and 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 many of the people in it and that's the reason we did this were they in as much danger as what was being spun at the time oh no it's capital capitalism is at work there i mean they got skyscrapers everywhere all the big hotels are there uh, it is amazing a very clean city if you, if you can get used to the traffic, wow. I mean, millions of bikes everywhere. Of course, you see the, the, the luxury cars and the, a lot of uh, the cars from the Japanese market. But it's a, a booming city. I actually have a friend that's there right now. When we were there last year, Stacy was trying to find her uh, family since she was an adopted. That was one of her main goals, was to go back to Vietnam and try to locate her family. Unfortunately, her mom had passed. Do you, do you have an opinion about what what these kids' lives would have been like if they hadn't been brought to the United States? Yeah, because uh, just walking around uh, the Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City, you can see some of the, some of the uh, kids that were mixed kids, were Amerasian kids. You could tell that they, their life is not as uh, flourishing as others. A lot of them are panhandlers selling things on the side of the street. Vietnamese culture. They don't like mix, mixing race. So they've had a hard life because they've been subject to racism, but they they weren't covered with gasoline and burned the way that some no, people... No, no, no. just You could tell that they've been, they struggled. But, uh, of course, that's what, what you, the eyes can see. And we don't know whatever happened, you know, once once the Americans left. 
What, what about the kids who weren't mixed race? They blend into the, the community. You really can't tell. And, and you never can, you can't even tell this is a communist country. It's just like going to Tokyo or going to Taiwan or Thailand or Bangkok. So some of the orphanages are still there, I understand. Yes. Did you oh, go yes, to visit visited, any of those? Yes, I visited a couple of orphanages just while I was there. One young lady, she was uh, adopted in, in Australia. And uh, as she got an education and all, she ended up moving back to Vietnam and opening up her own orphanage. Wow. And I had a chance to visit her orphanage. And it was very moving, very touching. Um, it seems that the adoptees are grateful to have a better life here, thanks to your heroism and the subsequent flights that brought them here. But as they start to return to explore their birth countries, and as more facts come to light over time, they start to perceive a deception that was being woven about just how much danger they were in. Um, in your trips back to Vietnam with, with adoptees, have you witnessed any of this new, more difficult awareness? When I hear those comments like that, that's because those folks don't know the total story. Now, the C-5, our aircraft was uh, actually the second aircraft to go in there. President Ford's decision to send us in was the official response to the baby lift. The first baby lift was done by World Airways by uh, the CEO by the name of Ed Daly. And he's is the one who prompted President Ford to go ahead and make the decision to fly these kids out of there because the president didn't want any more of these cowboy-like uh, uh, pilots flying kids out of South Vietnam unauthorized, and that's what sparked everything to get going. He would make rice runs all over Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia be dropping off rice, and he was able to see the people from the north of fleeing the north to the south, and he would get to Da Nang, it would be a big backup because the, the communists was marching in. So he was able to see what was going on and, and try to urge the, our government to do something. So we were slow to react. So Ed just took things under his control and, and he, he made the first run. I just, it makes me realize how, how uh, loving our country is and how you know we're at the forefront of saving folks when it comes to war. And even the refugees, and these people need help, you know, especially the ones who are scoring. Why um, they ported the babies to America after the war? Because like no, isn't any nothing going to happen because the war is already over? That's a good question. I think that this country's leaders wanted to paint such a bad picture of the enemy that there were all kinds of rumors flying around. Um, why um, didn't they figure out and see if they were really going to come and, like, destroy the babies? Like, send a soldier over there to, like, listen to their plans. See, that's where the CIA comes in. And there was intelligence, but the United States was trying to make everything look like we were heroes over there. The ambassador department was in the business of creating uh, fear and chaos by emphasizing that the North Vietnamese would eat babies, as he used to say, if they took over the country. So there are all these cross-talks. It was a, uh, it was a, a complicated situation, but there were complicated motives. If you're listening closely, you're probably hearing some things that sound contradictory about things that happened in that month, the most terror-stricken, panicked month of the Vietnam War. As they say, it was a complicated time, and there was a lot going on, and there are plenty of reasons to go back and examine what the truth was. But as it pertains to our new friend and war hero, Phil Wise, and his belief that our country is, as he says, on the forefront of saving babies and taking in refugees, I did want to ask him how he felt Operation Baby Lift related to other modern struggles to incorporate or welcome or not welcome refugees of war, say, from Syria. I wonder what, what it would be like now if the, the Syrian refugees who were coming in were just children, or if we, would, we were involved directly in that conflict, how we would treat it. I think that that would be mainly, the focus would be in Europe and in the other, in the other Middle Eastern countries, because it could bring them across 
uh, that across the water is so far away. Uh, I don't know. I just think that they, they, others people could step up to the plate too, you know. It, it can't always be us. Well, in Saigon, now Ho Chi Minh City, we know that they didn't come in and burn babies. The Viet Cong took Saigon, they changed its name, but they never sought out mixed-race kids and killed them. They pretty much left the orphanages alone, from all we can tell. But life in a war-torn country is extremely hard. I can't imagine how hard. But to find out if the baby-lift adoptees were truly lucky, and just how lucky they were, we wanted to talk to somebody who lived their childhood during the first decade of Ho Chi Minh City. We found her. She works in a dentist office right here in our hometown of Portland. We invited her over to the house for bagels, and Dana and Vern both fawned over her six-month-old adorable baby. Hi. This is T. Hi, T. Nice to meet you, T. <laughs> nice to meet you, Quinn. Nice to meet you. Really nice to meet you. These are my daughters. Hi. We sat down for a little while with Quinn and got comfortable because we had some tough questions to ask her. Frank Snepp, in his book, said, quote, Ambassador Martin began planting horror stories in the press and around Saigon concerning a possible bloodbath. He was trying to generate sympathy, suggesting that the communists were eating little children, in effect. The whole idea of a bloodbath was conjured out of thin air. We had no intelligence to indicate that the South Vietnamese were facing a bloodbath. So what was it really like after the communists took over? We wasn't rich. We have to mix um, rice with sweet potato most of every day to have enough to eat for you know everybody to have some rice to eat. My dad was trying to get to the U.S. by boat. He's one of those boat people. Um, and my mom left, so I was um, taken in by my grandparents. How so, did your mom leave? Do you remember? According to my grandparents, she had another, yeah. she fell in love with another person. She's not very she popular was, in the household. <laughs> no. <laughs> so they, they don't talk about her. And he was on the boat coming here to the U.S. So growing up, he's over here. He's the one that sponsored us over. So it took him 12 years. So it took quite a long time because there's a lot of us to sponsor. And you have, each of us, you have to pay a certain amount of money. So it's a lot of money you have to earn. And it's very difficult. That's, you know, growing up to me, it wasn't any like, oh, that's, this is bad. Or, it's just my normal life. That's how I raised. So Do you that, remember any fear in, in your childhood home about people coming in and... Um, the police will come whenever they can, well, when they, when they want to. If they know that you have something that they want, they just can come and make up some random excuse and take it away from you. So corruption. Yeah, so you, and then you, you can't do anything about it. Yeah. And, you know, if you do, then you get arrested or you get, they'll beat you up and arrest you. So yeah. if they want it. And um, a lot of people will hide if they have valuable things, they will hide it. They'll dig up a hole in the backyard or somewhere and hide wow. them. Wow. So a lot of businesses have to bribe mm -hmm. um, the government so that you can stay in business. Yeah. Otherwise, they can come and they can just make up random excuses and shut down your business. Wow. Is that why your family left? My dad was soldier during the war. So after the war, the communists put him in jail for a while and then he he left when I was only six months and it, it wasn't until I was 12 that I met him for the first time. Wow. How hard was life for you as a child? You didn't have a dad, your mom had taken off and you were poor. Yeah. What did you have to do to make it work? Well, I woke when I was five. I make buttons and labels. We would make labels like it would say Tommy Hill and put it on a shirt that was made in Vietnam, but right. it would say Tommy Hill on it, you know, it really is not, but, you know, we make those kind of stuff. Your life's a lie, Quinn. <laughs> I'm calling <Yeah>. Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> to me, I was actually lucky that I had a job, because if I didn't have a job, I would be one of those kids that be on the street selling lottery tickets, 
or begging for money. Mm-hmm. Because, so I was actually considered pretty lucky that I had a job. I was able to make money and go to school and I go to school. And did you always work when you were there? Yes. It's the weirdest thing. I, growing up, I really don't know my mom. Like, right. literally, I don't know. The biological mom. Mm-hmm. Right. And I never had dreams about her, anything. So, in 2000, for some reason, I was sleeping and I dreamed that my mom passed away. So, but I always wanted to know who my mom was and what she looked like and do I look like my dad or do I look like my mom? And it's all this story about her really true. So I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna buy me a ticket and I'm gonna go back to Vietnam. I'm gonna go find her. By yourself? Yes. Wow. Yeah, so I, so I bought a ticket and um, flew back and found my mom. And she, she married to that person that she fell in love with when my dad left for go to the U.S. How did that um, It didn't go very well. I think most people in Vietnam, because the money in the U.S., worth a lot in Vietnam. Like $100 over here is like a, a million dollars over there. She saw you as being rich. First day I was there, after 15 minutes talking to me, she's like, can I have $2,000? I have like a void inside of me because I didn't have parents growing up. That trip for me was kind of sad. It was mm-hmm. sad for me. I, I didn't find what I was wanting to find. How much truth about your difficult past should you know? I mean, you had to go find out about your mom, and it caused you pain. Are you you still glad that you did it, even though it didn't fill the void? I think I'm glad that I find out, because there's always questions in the back of my head, like, Mm -hmm. what is she like? Does it make you a stronger person? I think so. Hmm. I think so. In finding her, I'm able to make a decision on my own instead of doing things that my parents told me or my grandparents tell me, like, don't go find mom, she's a bad person, don't, don't do it. You were almost an orphan, but you had your grandparents. Yes. What would life have been like had Liz not gotten out for Liz, in your opinion? I think it depends. For Liz, I think that it's good that she got out. Life is hard for abandoned children. You never know. Um, they could end up on the street. They could end up being dead. So so I think it's a good thing that she was able to make it out of there. Are you yeah. so thankful to your dad for bringing the family over here? I am, but I am so glad that I was there. As a childhood, I grew up. I learned to be responsible. I mean, I think I probably was not able to enjoy life as a little kid that I wanted to be. I mean, we didn't have toys to play with. We didn't have TV to watch. It's only going to school and going to work. Hmm? Yeah. So, whether they were a pawn for the government or not, the orphans were removed. And not only orphans, but children from poor neighborhoods as well. The controversy about taking at-risk Vietnamese orphans and giving them an adoptive home has a lot of different aspects. For one, consider these orphanages. In a war-torn country, with so many of the men off in the army or deceased, many of the mothers used the orphanages more as a temporary rather than permanent depository for unwanted children. I thought an orphanage was like when the kids' parents died. Both parents died. Yeah, well, in Vietnam, the orphanages were a little bit different. They were also to be used by poor families if there wasn't enough food, if the mom couldn't take care of all their kids for a period of time. Oh. What was the war for again? What was the reason for the war? Yeah. Well, back then, people felt that their way of life was threatened by this philosophy, um, this system called communism. What is communism? But it goes further than the orphanages and the rumors on the street, the fear-mongering. Consider also that there was a thriving adoption industry in which Western families would pay top dollar to adoption agencies to bring them a Vietnamese baby. Listen to this actual footage of an adoption worker in the streets persuading a mother into giving up her baby. I take care of their children. 
They are mixed children. I would like to help them. I can take their children and send them to America. And it's better for everyone. Can I take him? Can I take him to the United States? No. Oh, you think. You think about it because he saw me take other boy, other boy very happy. Yes. Very happy. Where did you think you came from? Could you even imagine this faraway place? I couldn't. But my both my parents were wonderful in the sense of always talking about it, not making it like a weird thing. But the part that was weird was that I looked totally different. And that people assumed that how I looked, that I would talk a certain way. It was hard, I think, when I was younger, just because, you know, I was self-conscious and I looked different. Even though nobody gave me a hard time, which I was very lucky about, I still had a lot of, you know, weird feelings about that. About your ethnic identity? Yeah, exactly. And as I got older, you know, we'd even talk about the Vietnam War in history class. And I'd kind of cringe just because I'm like, oh, God, I hope nobody notices. <laughs> but obviously, you know, everybody knew I was from Vietnam. But then it just wasn't, I wasn't excited about it necessarily. This episode is to try to figure out who we are as a country. Right, right. And w w it started with the question, what the heck is the Statue of Liberty there for? And that is where we launched into, well, the Statue of Liberty for a long time was viewed as, even if it wasn't necessarily meant as, right. uh, a beacon of welcoming strength and liberty. The people coming over to Ellis Island, they would drop to their knees in tears on the boat when they saw the Statue of Liberty as so this welcoming beacon. Oh, my God. Everything, they'd come over for the American dream right. for, to escape right. oppression. Right. But you didn't make a conscious choice to escape no, oppression. that's exactly it. No. And thank goodness somebody made that choice for me. I mean, I have so many more opportunities, you know, being here. And I can, I can honestly say that, you know, because, again, I know the time. I know the situation. Um... And you went back and visited. Yes. And, and, you know, who's to say I could have survived just fine, but again, I wouldn't have had the same kind of education or support. You know, I probably probably would be working at a young age. And so since then, a lot of grown-ups, right, adults right, have emigrated right. from Vietnam to right. here. Do you think that they have that same feeling that they have a sense of um, opportunity here? Is the American dream alive for them? I truly believe so. I do. So for these adoptees and other refugees of Vietnam who got out at the last minute, in a sense, the United States was playing God. It was a good thing in that it may have saved lives, and it made it possible for these 3,000 or so adoptees to have what many would say is a better life. The problem is that when somebody plays God with you, especially if it's based on a deception or a series of deceptions, even if the overall outcome is good, it can, potentially, mess with your identity, your story. Imagine if when you look back at your life, it felt like this. Even though I was there, I look at it and I get like teary-eyed and I get emotional and I'm like, holy, that's me, but I, don't, but I don't feel that. It's like a movie that obviously I'm part of, but I don't have any recollection of. But you have an emotional attack. But I do, emotional exactly. Yeah. And so I'm looking at this like a story, like anybody else listening to the story, but I'm like, oh my God. Who are we, Rome schooled, to play any part at all in determining what is true and what is not true about the past in a country thousands of miles away, and then hand that to you, the listener, or to other people who were intimately involved in the struggle of the time? I'm not really sure. In fact, I don't feel that comfortable about it. But after talking to other people who were much more closely involved, who are also seeking out the truth, we've decided to go ahead with this. Not just asking these questions in this episode and examining the truth here, but to continue. I think personally it's important for everybody, people included, people not included, to just know the facts. The more you know, oh, yeah. the more fulfilled your life can be. Absolutely. And like I said, even the negative things are the things that I didn't you know, know about. I think subconsciously fills a void. I think that uh, any adoptee who lived through that episode deserves to know what happened and how they got out and why they got out. Um, the CIA's motto is the old biblical saying, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. But in the most basic terms, that means truth saves lives. And so we need to know when something goes wrong, why things go wrong. And the more we cover up the truth, 
the more likely we are to repeat mistakes. And, and I find the only real morality lesson from Vietnam is that you have to tell the truth, and you have to make sure that the truth is not a casualty of a war. Eyes wide open now, you know? I believe knowing everything makes you stronger. The good and the bad. You know? Just like I... Even if it hurts. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily have to hurt. You don't know that yet. Both Frank Snepp and Liz Bergstrom have incredible stories. And in our next episode, we're going to take one step further in exploring their past and what they carry with them every day. The story of what Frank Snepp left behind in Vietnam will probably surprise you. And that's what we'll start with in our next episode of Rome Schooled. The theme for our next show is birthdays and end of days. Thanks so much for listening to this unusual episode of Rome School. Please let me know what you think, get involved in the show, or just drop me a line at jim at romeschool.com. I want to thank all the people who took the time to sit down and share intimate stories with me and my daughters to make this episode. And most importantly, Dana and Vern, who inspired the questions, topics, and came along for the ride. Rome School is written and produced by me, Jim Brunberg, with invaluable production assistance, concept, and website development by Lydia Ritchie. Ben Landsberg and I wrote and recorded the music, and Ryan White writes things that help convince people to air, support, or just listen to the show. If you're listening to this show on iTunes or Stitcher, that's great. Also, make sure you check it out on our website, where there's a lot more information, including photographs and other documents that you can only see on our website. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you in the next show.